When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we jump into the first edition of Calling the Shots with Adam Collins and Dan Norcross, I'm thrilled to report that we're going to be working with Wisden Almanac all the way through uh, this series. The good book, of course, it's that time of the year, Dan. April is wisdom time, and of course, it's been coming out since 1864. This was the 157th edition. It's available in hardback, paperback, large format hardback. There's the Shorter Wisdom ebook, which is an absolute cracker. Likewise, the Shorter Wisdom audiobook. So there's a number of ways of getting nine, uh, 2020, I nearly called it 1920s, 2020's edition of the Cricketing Bible at wisdomalmanac.com forwards slash 2020. And what a book it is. The first one I was given was from the 1958 season. I got every one for my birthday, luckily enough, my birthday falling in April <laughs> from 1977, pretty much to the present day. And this year's one is going to be an absolute cracker as it looks back on probably the greatest summer of English cricket 2019. As you'd expect, essays from some of the best cricket writers in the world, the usual Wisdom 5 Cricketers of the Year, the Editor's Notes, which are always a must-read. But I've got to stress that the best way to access Wisdom year-on-year is being a subscriber. 25 quid if you're a subscriber. You can put the book on your shelf. You can start your collection. If you don't, it's £55. So to become a subscriber, wisdomalmanac.com forward slash subscribe. I mentioned before there's the e-book and the audio book. So if you don't fancy having uh, the sort of the big brick, if you like, if that's not your style, um, the shorter wisdom, it's an e-book. It's brilliant. It contains the best writing uh, and it comes at a, a, a much, a, a very much a discounted price. And likewise, the audio book. If you're listening to a cricket podcast, you're probably into audio books as well. Well, these days you can also access the best writing from wisdom via the audio book. Tell me something about it. what have we got in this year's wisdom? What are we looking at on those, uh, on those articles? Well, what don't we have? I mean, as you mentioned, the 2019 World Cup, the 2019 Ashes, just unbelievable series. We hear from Owen Morgan, the captain of the victorious England men's side. Uh, we, we get Wisdom's champion county. John Hotton goes into that. Of course, Bob Willis passed away earlier this year. There's a tribute to him from his old England teammate and Sky colleague, Paul Allett. Uh, there's memories of the Super Over from the players who are involved. A great essay from Emma John about being a member of the MCC. Um, Nick Holt's gone into great detail about the birth of the 100, which may or may not actually happen in 2020. We'll see. Uh, we're looking at the 100 draft as well. Uh, there's an essay from Andy Bull but from The Guardian about being a left-handed batsman and all the various quirks of that. Um, the men's leading cricketers, Ben Stokes, the leading women's cricketer, is Elise Perry. There's all the awards you're familiar with, including the famous Wisdom Five. I've got to say, I've been a lover of Wisdom and a writer in the Almanac for many years, but it's got to be, if not the best edition, one of the greatest editions, certainly in my lifetime. So don't forget, all those formats available from wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020. You absolutely can, Dan. And of course, they're on Twitter at Wisdom Almanac. With all that said, Dan, I think we should get on with the show. 
as Hollies pitches the ball up slowly and he's bowled. Bradman bowled Hollies no. Comes in, body to Bradman. It's ball well pitched. Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it, it's all, it's high, it's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so it's all, it's all one He's done it. Garing has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. Oh, Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Comes up and bowls and Kasparovic goes back and parries one as he caught down the leg side. There's an appeal for catches out. England have won. England have won. Got him. Why did he do that? Unbelievable. And now both chasing it. It's going straight into the confectionery stall and out again. I'm Daniel Walkos. I'm Adam Collins and this is Calling the Shots brought to you by The Pinch Hitter, a new documentary podcast telling the story of a century of cricket commentary. Welcome to episode one of six in which we'll start to explore what makes a great broadcaster and how they bring us the big, defining moments that stay with us forever. In subsequent episodes, we'll also be looking at the origin story of commentary. Where did it all start? Who were those pioneers in the 1920s and 1930s? And how did they overcome the challenges of broadcasting events thousands of miles away without today's digital and satellite technology? We'll also look at how commentary changed its style as television entered the scene and new forms of cricket were played around the world. And why is it that commentary itself can often end up just as memorable as the cricket being described. These days, both of us have the ludicrous good fortune to earn a living from commentating cricket. Was it always your ambition to end up doing this, Adam? Well, the early plan was to be the subject of those commentaries, to be the player whose skills brought the commentators to their feet. Uh, But once it became abundantly and disappointingly clear that wasn't going to happen, calling the game became more than an adequate second best, Daniel. In in many respects, we're living the childhood dream, narrating the game that we cherish. Well, initially, as an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, I used to call my imaginary innings in front of the mirror in my head but imitating the style and voices of the great commentators of my childhood, people like John Arlott, Brian Johnston and Tony Cozier. For me, the accompanying commentary is what gave my fantasy a structure, a reality almost. I reckon I consumed cricket through the voices of the people calling it more than the players themselves to some extent. Yeah, and for my part, I was the quintessential Aussie kid of the 1990s. Every available summer moment spent in front of the television listening to Richie and Tony and Bill and Ian. Uh, They ensured that there was no other choice. I was going to be captivated by cricket for a lifetime. 
as a teenager, that moved into a fascination with cricket on the radio, the voices of Jim Maxwell, Tim Lane and Kerry O'Keefe amongst a whole host of others from home and abroad, cultivating an interest in how brilliantly words alone could paint the picture of the game. A lot of the time, commentary to me was the comforting background hum to the action and almost Homeric oral poetry with repetitive rhythms and cadences for the field settings, the score, the bowler running in and so forth. But then it would all be lifted by a dramatic moment, a wicket, a player reaching his hundred, a scintillating catch. The commentator's voice would rise and you would suddenly be jolted into a space of hyper-awareness. And when the big moments arrived, the call that accompanied them would be savoured, replayed and recited over and over again. Take the night where Michael Bevan single-handedly dragged Australia to victory over the West Indies on New Year's Day in 1996, smashing a four down the ground from the final ball to make a superstar of himself. Bill Laurie was the perfect man for the job behind the mic. It's Michael Bevan's evening at the Sydney Cricket Ground. For me, it was that great escape at Headingley in 1981. Until about nine months ago, the comeback to end all comebacks, when England famously overcame odds of 500 to 1, thanks to historic performances from Ian Botham and then the late, great Bob Willis, having the day of his and indeed our lives. Bowl in, it's all over, and it is one of the most fantastic victories ever known in Test cricket history. Bob Willis, eight wickets, a fabulous performance. England have won this match after one of the most astonishing fightbacks you can ever see. Of course, that was one of two instances in the space of 18 months where Richie Benno was calling England home to famous nail-biting victories over the side he once led. The next was at Melbourne in 1982 with the Ashes on the line and a last-wicket stand that nearly pushed Australia to a one-wicket win. Nearly. Ian Botham balls now to Jeff Thompson. He's done him. Second time, Tabarain knocked it up. And it was taken by Miller. Thompson has gone so close. England win by three runs. But that, of course, was how it was described on the television. For those of us back in England in 1982, there was no live television coverage of away tours through the night. We consumed our cricket for half the year via the radio, and only the radio. Here's that self-same moment on the BBC's Test Match special. Ian Botham is going to have one last crack at Jeff Thompson. And 2.88 for nine. Four to win for Australia. And Botham now bowls to Thompson. Thompson, he, he dropped it. He's out. He's, he's out. He's caught in the slip. Tavaray knocked it up. And it was Miller who caught the rebound. England have won by three runs. Just hearing those words again, the almost Proustian resonance of them takes me straight back to the cold, damp farmhouse in Wales in which I first heard Henry Blofeld describe the agonising finish to that match as I paced around the room with my late father in the small hours of the morning. For those of us crazily in love with the game of cricket, it's the commentators, just as much as the players, who inform our memories. So on this debut edition of Calling the Shots, we have with us a pair of callers who span the mediums. One, a former international player who found himself in the TV commentary box as soon as he hung up his wicket-keeping gloves. I'll tell you how the first time I ever got to call a big moment. That, of course, is the voice of Ian Smith, senior commentator for Sky Sports in New Zealand and the man who was charged the responsibility last year of calling the most captivating World Cup final of all time. In any sport, anywhere, 
ever. New Zealand were about to beat Lord uh, England at Lords for the first time ever, uh, and I was working the Channel Four with Richie Benno, who I don't idolise too many people, but I can clearly say I, I absolutely idolised Richie Benno. Hung on every word, used to sit in the back of the commentary box when Benno was on. And on this particular afternoon, New Zealand had won at Lords, uh, was about to win at Lords, and it was a huge amount of history for a New Zealand cricket team. And Ben, I set it up uh, along the lines of something like New Zealand are about to create history. It's going to be a wonderful moment for them, four to win. And he put the microphone down and got up and walked away. And there was only two of us there. And the producer said to him, Rich, where are you going? Where are you going, Rich? It's a big moment. He said, yeah, it is. It's his moment too. Let him have it. It's, I suppose you'd say, well, you've been thrown in the deep end, but you've, bro- you've been thrown one of the biggest compliments of all time that your voice is going to call that moment and a great man like Richie Benno has deemed it the right time for you to do it. And I think I grew up 10 years in commentary in 20 seconds there that the great man who I idolised so much had given me that opportunity to be part of my cricket teams and my my country's cricketing history. I, I reflect on that still today on, on how lucky I was and how classy he was. And our second guest is a broadcast journalist who was the first English woman to graduate to the BBC radio box for a home test. In recent times, playing a starring role on television broadcast around the cricketing world. And that's the greatest thing about sports commentary. Alison Mitchell, of course, my colleague on Test Match Special and a starry presence as a host of Channel 7's coverage in Australia. It is wonderful unscripted drama. To begin, who were those inspirational voices that drew them to the craft in their formative years? Uh, I go back to John Arlott, Brian Johnson, those guys, and listening to New Zealand uh, play in England on shortwave radio. And my most dominant memory is listening to Australian cricket with McGilvray, Alan McGilvray and Lindsay Hassett. Uh, Now, I I grew up listening to those guys and, and I would play backyard cricket with those voices in my mind or, or hallway cricket against myself with those voices in my mind. Is it a bit naughty to say that the commentary which made a, a big impact on me was listening to the Twelfth Man tapes? <laughs> because it was it was amusing commentary. It was it was entertainment. Commentary is entertainment and it made cricket was was cool and fun and shareable. It was being shared about everyone was saying, Have you heard the Twelfth Man tapes? Have you listened to the Twelfth Man tapes? And it became this thing which which had a cult following and and, and became very cool. But in terms of commentary uh, moments and impact on me. I was a big watcher of, of all sports and the Olympics of 1988 made a particularly big impact on me because that was the first Olympic Games that, that I remember clearly. I was an eight-year-old and the words of the great Barry Davies, who's a famous BBC commentator, at that 1988 hockey final in the men's when Imran Shawani scored against the Germans and it's a clip which replayed again and again and again throughout my lifetime, really, um, still gets wheeled out now, was Barry Davis simply calling the goal. Two goals for Imran Shawani. Where were the Germans? But frankly, who cares? And that was it. Not delivered with even any tremendous um, excitement or it was just where were the Germans? But frankly, who cares? And that was it. What was a key piece of advice they were given when they first started out behind the microphone? The first thing I was always told as a broadcaster was that it was really important to be yourself, first and foremost. 
But of course, you listen and you have a, a library of commentators' voices in your ears that you've heard over the years. If being yourself isn't good enough, uh, you won't have the job. You know, they'll give it to somebody else. So you've, you've got to trust that being yourself is good enough. In the job, you have a weight of responsibility to your audiences. And while it's often the same general audience, they're receiving your words through very different mediums. I always try to keep in mind there'll be people listening who are blind, who are visually impaired, who cannot see. And I always find it the, the biggest compliment if we meet some of our radio listeners who do have visual impairments who say, I love your commentary because you really paint pictures and make me feel like I'm there and you tell me exactly what is happening. Then I think, yep, that's a job well done. I think television has driven a lot of the change because people d have demanded a lot more from that style of commentary. It's just not a, an informative side of things. It's certainly a, an entertainment side of things as well. And I think finding the balance between those two things has become critically important. It's almost uh, an unwritten rule in radio now. Don't leave a gap. And certainly don't leave a gap when you might hear polite applause for a hundred or something in the background. You've got to talk over that stuff. Uh, and television is slightly more liberal in that regard because you let the picture tell the story to a certain degree, but not for long. Ali's first big break as an international broadcaster and first huge moment to call arrived in the most unexpected of circumstances. Yeah, the 2007 World Cup, I was actually there only as a reporter. I wasn't meant to be doing any commentary. I was at the start of my commentary career. So there I was at Savannah Park in Jamaica. I'd been left as a sole reporter on my own just to do updates for Five Live for the game between Pakistan and Ireland. Of course, Pakistan were expected to beat Ireland comfortably, so it wasn't a A-list game. There wasn't a TMS commentary team assigned to it. It was just me. And then Ireland pulled off the biggest World Cup shock in history. Beat Pakistan, dumped them out of the tournament, and... As this result was becoming more and more apparent over the course of my updates, I was getting messages from my from the producer and from back at base in England and the old phone call in between my updates thinking, hmm, if this really goes down to the wire or if you think they might win this, we might need to cross to you for commentary. Asa Mahmood to bowl to Trent Johnston. One run needed for victory and Trent Johnston clears the boundary. It's going to be a six and the Irish fans are celebrating. The captain leaps around the ground like a leprechaun. He's thumping the air. Ireland have registered an incredible win here at Sabina Park in the Cricket World Cup. Ireland have knocked out the giants of cricket, Pakistan. Pakistan, who've played well over a thousand one day internationals between them. Pakistan, a team with some of the best one day players in the world. They've been embarrassed, crushed by the team from the Emerald Isle in their very first World Cup. I guess thank you very much to the Ireland cricket team for providing me with what became uh, an utter highlight of a match to be at. Of course, that all happened for Ali on radio, but she works in both broadcast boxes. So let's take a look at how a moment on TV was handled very differently when Ali was covering the 2017-18 Ashes for BT Sport. At that stage at the MCG test match, Cook had averaged, I think he was averaging something like 13 going into that match. It had a torrid time of it. But to get to a double hundred in an Ashes test match away from home, again, the, the context of the moment in television is quite different because you're not so much needing to you know, say what is happening in terms of the celebrations or everything like that because people can see it. Often you're looking for just a, a short phrase 
which matches the moment and, and augments the pictures. Beautiful from Alistair Cook. A fantastic double hundred. Here's England's grandmaster and the MCG respects. For me, it was some sort of symbolism of Cook triumphant with a double hundred in an Ashes test at this colossus of a stadium, which is the MCG. That was a landmark day in Alistair Cook's career. But the biggest moments are about one side triumphing over another on the biggest stage of all. Ian Smith was, of course, famously on the mic throughout the 2019 World Cup. But before that, he'd experienced extraordinary drama at the previous World Cup in New Zealand. I've seen a lot of cricketing good times at Eden Park and a lot of a lot of down times as well when we haven't quite jumped that fence, that last fence. We've fallen at the last one. That night was one of belief. I kind of felt that McCallum had the Midas touch about him. Uh, and as the drama unfolded throughout the night, you could kind of tell it was just going to go down to the wire. And I, I didn't enter that last commentary stint thinking it was going to be as dramatic as it was. So you, you just sort of go with the flow. And then it was just an amazing thing. And then, of course, when Elliot hit the six, when Grant Elliot hit the six, it was quite similar to how uh, New Zealand beat in Australia where Kane Williamson earlier in the tournament. It hit a six almost into the same area of the grandstand. So I'd already called that, uh, so I, I, I suppose I was ready for it. Elliot hits it the grandstand, and I learned a lot from that. Uh, I didn't prepare for it. I had no idea how that game was going to finish up. I didn't have any phrases that I'd written down in a textbook just in case it happened. Uh, I, I just went with it. For me, it's about making sure that I have a full handle on the, the context of any situation. And therefore, when the big moment comes, yeah, part, part of it, you're riding on instinct, of course you are, but also just knowing the historical context, backdrop, whatever it is, just means when the big moment comes, I feel confident in myself that, that I will, I'll reach out and find the right words. The right words will come through instinct, but that instinct is built on a backdrop of preparation. For Smith, that 2015 World Cup semi-final drama was about to get replicated four years later at Old Trafford, with New Zealand once again looking to reach the final, and once again the match hinging on a key moment. India closing in on victory, but heavily reliant on Dodi staying at the crease to marshal his lower order over the line. In that run-out situation at Manchester, here's a guy, Martin Guptill, who had had a miserable tournament, to be fair. It hadn't worked out well for him, nothing had gone his way. He couldn't buy a run, but you realise, you, you figured at some point that he was a, he's a brilliant fieldsman. If there was going to be a moment, uh, he'd get into the game somehow. And, and I think that was in the back of my mind as well, that if, if it's Guptill, you're a chance. And I think once it went to Guptill, I think I got up a little bit higher, thinking that I also got up higher because it's M.S. Dhoni. And M.S. Dhoni is the greatest closer in the game. And without M.S. Dhoni, then India are going to battle. Uh, in those tense situations. Now they've got to push for two. Who's going to cover the keeper's stumps? They're going to go. Something in the back of my head said, this could be the biggest moment in this match. Going forward, this could be the biggest moment in this match. And so you go. You, that's when you take your punt. That's when you, 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 have, you have your go at it. And you think, well, OK, I'm going to back myself to give this one everything. Thanks, Gavin. I've made my decision. Look at the big screen, everybody. Look at it. It says that magic three-letter word. 
And MS Stoney is it the last time he leaves the big stage. So let's move on to the biggest games of them all. You've both had the chance and the privilege to call outstanding World Cup finals, both of them at Lords and both of them with incredible finishes. Ali in 2017 when England beat India in a landmark day for women's cricket. And of course, Smithy, last year in a game that will be talked about forever. In a nutshell, uh, we'd been there for seven weeks. Um, you know, it's a long time, a Cricket World Cup. Uh, if, if you start and start at the beginning and, and go through to the end, and we'd been there a long, long time. So how twice in one afternoon, really, how could 48 games of cricket over seven weeks or so come down to one ball? Because in, in normal time, it was the same scenario. Um, so here we have half an hour later the same scenario again and then all of a sudden thank god it starts the action starts and so you say i'm very conscious in that scenario and i think if you listen back i'm i'm almost every ball saying what the scenario is so two to tie one to one scenario type situation because you kind of figure that in a world cup final you've still got to educate you're probably dragging in a lot of viewers that haven't watched or listened to cricket like that before. Every ball, you've got to say what the scenario is. Um, so you make it painfully obvious what they're about to see, what has to happen for either side. I remember clearly when India needed 11 runs off 11 balls, I grabbed a blank sheet of paper, stuck it in front of me and wrote down the numbers 11 to one down one side of the paper, on one side, down one side of the page and down next to them, I then wrote the, the runs needed after each delivery because I've been in so many situations in different games around the world where a scoreboard goes blank or the computer crashes or you glance up at the scoreboard at the moment you desperately need the score and it's flipped to an advert. And I just thought, I cannot risk getting this wrong. Smithy, let me take you to that remarkable moment in the last over of England's innings. They need nine to win off three balls. Stokes can't find the boundary with his initial hit. But then something quite extraordinary happens. You arrive at the, the ground, you look at the commentary roster and you see yourself doing the last half hour or the last seven overs. And you, at no stage do you think that you're going to be calling that kind of moment. You're like the player in that regard. You, none of those players hopped off the bus at, at Lords that morning thinking that that was going to go to that point and the World Cup final was going to go that way. Uh, so, oh, look, I, I hopped in with uh, half an hour to go with uh, NASA Hussain and, and Ian Bishop, so you're an Englishman, a New Zealander, and, of course, uh, Mr Perfect, you know, the, the guy with all the balanced bish who's just a, wonder, a wonderfully great man to work with and, and so just puts uh, just puts a balance on most things. Uh, it was just a, it was a heck of a combination, but we, 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 didn't, we didn't know. And then, you know, we got to that bizarre situation where the ball hit Stokes' bat and ran up the hill. They go to the other end. Oh, he gets in the way. This has got to go all the way to the boundary off the bat. Can you believe this? It has. How many years have I played international cricket in tight situations where I'd never seen that happen before? I've seen it come off the body, I've seen it deflect off anything, but I've never seen it. I watched that ball go up the hill at Lords and it seemed to go faster. I mean, gravity <laughs> says it should slow down, <laughs> but it didn't slow down. Colin DeGronham, I think, was chasing it. He was making no ground on this damn thing. Ali, that women's final had a gobsmacking finish as well, culminating in an exhilarating batting collapse, and you were there calling it all the way to the finish line for TMS. I stepped into the commentary position in that final 
with India needing 28 from the last 30 balls. They had three wickets in hand at that stage and felt as if the game was going India's way. So then suddenly India nine down, they need 11 off 11. And the atmosphere and the feeling in the ground was like nothing I'd experienced or witnessed at Lords before. A feverish crowd. The voices were a mix of younger, much younger than you'd normally get at Lords. Families, lots of female voices. Two years on now to the finale of the men's tournament and the last ball of the regulation 50 overs had everything riding on it. Seven weeks of cricket, 48 games, one ball, here's Bolt. They're going to push. Are we in for a super over? They've got to go quick. They've got to go quick. Out. I'm sure he's out. We're going to a super over. So we get to that situation where we've got a super over. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I did not know all the rules of the super over. So when they came up as a graphic on the screen, I was reading them to the world. I was actually reading them for the first time. I was waiting for the captains to toss. and all. I had no idea about that. Look, I, we had no idea of who was going to come out and bat for either side because that was those decisions were made behind closed doors. And so when the door opened and whoever was walking out walked out, that added because you could build that into half the drama. Who were the two blokes? Who were the guys that were going to be charged with the responsibility? And that's a talking point while this is all unfolding. And that's 10 minutes or so. Uh, of drama that you're trying to, you've just got over the fact you're getting there and now you've got to start again. That last commentary stint, I think, instead of half an hour, was closer to about an hour and 10 minutes mm, mm. Um, once it finished. You must have been absolutely shattered at the end of the 50th over. Was there any possibility at that point you'd be replaced for the super over? I think I was happy to be left on because I was in the zone, I was in the mood. Neither of the other two guys desperately wanted to get out. Uh, I think we'd sort of formed in a, in a very short space of time quite a nice little unit and we sort of had most bases covered. I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of call the action and NASA would have very quick analysis from both sides, of course. There's a passionate guy, NASA Hussain. I mean, this is a guy that's captain England through its highs and its lows, trying to win the Ashes, trying to win World Cups, playing in so many. There's a guy who's very, very passionate about England cricket in that scenario, trying to hold his level. And then you've got the neutral guy, Ian Bishop, who's had highs and lows of the great West Indian side. I'm an 80-20 lead commentator. I'm 80% monitor on what you can see at home. I'm 20% out the window. Uh, so I'm looking, for, I'm looking for signs out the window that I can preempt. In those tense situations, I stay as 80-20, and therefore I'm able to see players' reactions, and they're the reactions that I had when I was a player. So I, can, I, I think I can sense joy, I can sense tenseness, and I can sense closeness of situations as much looking out the window as I can on TV. It's the final ball of the craziest match any of us have ever seen, the end of the 102nd over. It's past half past seven in the evening. What do you remember about it? I can still see that moment now, uh, and then I basically called it out the window almost, because I knew the cameras would have it covered. It's going to be on Martin Guptill. It's going to be on Martin Guptill. Guptill's going to push for two. They've got to go. So I could see Guptill turning. It's got to throw. It's got to go to the keeper's end. You can only have one shot on at the moment. At the moment. So I knew that they would be following the ball. I was looking at Guptill turning. Um, all these things, This is, you get back to this 80-20 situation where you're looking there and you're looking there. Uh, and I, I just, I was standing, uh, and I just, 
I could see it unfolding either way. I mean, could Jason Roy fumble? Uh, he'd fumbled not long before in normal time. Th- this is a kid, you know, who's who, who's got the responsibility at the high part of Lords. Not easy running around on that slope, uh, and then finding a throw somehow that was is close enough for Butler to do what he had to do. He's got- Now that throw could have gone anywhere. In fact, if it had been much wider of Butler, I think Gupta would have got home. That's how close the margin was. And I think at that time when um, he broke the bales, my memory was looking around at England reactions. The guys that were close, the guys that were square on, Butler himself. And at that moment, I think I realised by England's reactions that England had won. So how did Ian Smith find those immortal words, a piece of commentary that is going to be replayed forever? I don't know where it came from. I don't know where the barrister margins came from. I had nothing written down. I had no preparation for that. Who knows? How can you prepare for a game of cricket like that? I often thought, what would I have said if New Zealand, what, what would I have said? And, you know, afterwards it's easy to find a line, something like, little old New Zealand stand on top of the cricketing world and let me tell you the... The view's pretty damn good or something like that. Um, you know, but that's a line that will never be used because they must. So you you find, you just find something within yourself and you trust that you can. And, and I, I just think they all came together at that right time and helped me uh, find find the right phrase at the right time. That And then, of course, it was, it was quite evident that there was, it was going to be uh, ecstasy and agony and the camera guys did a wonderful job and the producers directors Gav Scavell did a great job of finding those moments and you you don't have to say a lot over those you don't have to say a heck of a lot because tears and joy and laughter and tears of despair sort of sum themselves up now back to Ali Mitchell at Lords two years earlier so Ben India need 10 runs to win still nine balls left Shrubsole comes in Shrubsole and now balls for balls England's hero, England win the World Cup in front of a packed house at Lords. I wanted to paint more of a picture about this historic occasion because it wasn't as simple as England winning a World Cup. England's women had won a World Cup that had been the most watched World Cup in the history of the game. The final staged at Lords, the grand home of cricket, never been sold out for a women's game before. There was a time when England weren't even allowed to play at Lord's. So I knew I wanted to get that context into that occasion and that moment of winning. And then I just wanted people to be able to drink in and note the noise and the sound of it. England in a huddle. Listen to that noise for an England women's team winning a World Cup on home soil in 2017. I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, do you prepare in advance what you might say for a moment? Do you write down what you might say? And the answer is absolutely no. But I don't think it hurts at all for the sense of feeling to come through the airwaves. And that adds to things. And a passion in your voice conveys the the passion of the moment and the meaning of the moment. And it will be being shared by all those listening on the airwaves as well, whether television or radio. Ian, as difficult a moment as it was for you as a proud New Zealander, you really made sure it was England's moment and how you captured the ending because you knew that that really mattered. I think you've got to be 
conscious of who your audience is. Now, in a World Cup television situation, you're generally working for the host broadcaster, which is the world, um, and there's a lot of neutral people um, in most broadcasts when you're working for the world feed. If I was working for strictly a New Zealand audience, I think I'd be a different commentator. I, I think my true colours would come through a bit more, but I've learnt throughout that time um, to become a cricket commentator from New Zealand, not a New Zealand cricket commentator. Okay, so there, there's a for me there's a fine line there that you don't cross. How do you look back on something like that from this vantage point? I don't think I'll ever find another moment like that. I hope we do. I, I sincerely hope we do. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to find uh, an 80 or 90 minutes like that again. A big thank you to Ian Smith and Alison Mitchell for both being such generous guests with their time and appearing on the first episode of this new series. Calling the Shots is being produced in partnership with The Pinchetter, a fabulous new initiative from the same people who bring you The Night Watchman. During this time of global uncertainty, the exciting new digital magazine will be released once a fortnight, chock full of contributions from some of the best freelance cricket writers in the world. Call of the Shots will arrive alongside each edition of The Pinchetter, which you can subscribe to at thenightwatchman.net. Simple as that. That is being made on a pay-what-you-can-afford basis, with all financial contributions going back into commissioning more brilliant cricket writing. So don't wait. Jump straight onto thenightwatchman.net to get hold of editions one and two of The Pinch Hitter. In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller of Bad Producer Productions for making the show possible. Calling the Shots is another proud member of the Bad Producer family. For more of their shows, jump on badproducerproductions.com. And if you're listening today and you're interested in having your brand partner with Calling the Shots through the rest of this series, please drop either of us a line. Our contact details are in the show notes. That's all from us today on Call of the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for episode two, going back to the interwar period when cricket on the radio was born. Until next time, bye for now. now.